Welcome to the podcast of the University of Massachusetts Amherst History Department's 2016-2017 to Feinberg Family Distinguished Lecture Series, The U.S. in the Age of Mass Incarceration. Today, October 5th, 2016, we broadcast a lecture by longtime civil rights attorney Flint Taylor of the People's Law Offices titled Racist and Systematic Police Violence, Chicago Style. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Tucson. It's, it's, it's so wonderful to be introduced by someone who I came to know and respect in Chicago. And what he didn't say about himself was that he was not only a scholar, uh, someone who was writing and interviewing, but he was in the streets and he was fighting for justice on the south side of Chicago in some very important struggles having to do with health care over the years. And I got to know him as well because our office represented him when he refused to back down from the police and was arrested unfairly. And he, this university, is, uh, it's very good that he's here. Uh, and it, it's a real boon to the history department to have Toussaint here. And a good part of my um, preliminary introduction uh, I can do away with because um, Professor Nye uh, thanked everybody that I should have thanked. So I again want to thank everybody uh, and uh, particularly thank Professor Nye and Professor Johnson and Professor Mellis uh, for bringing me here. Uh, and I'm very happy to be here. And the last time I was here, believe it or not, was 1964. No, actually 1963. I was a junior at Westboro High School down the road near Worcester, and I came here um, to Boys State. And that, I learned a little bit about government at that time. Uh, I went on to go to Brown, as was mentioned, uh, and then I journeyed out to Northwestern Law School. And I went to Northwestern Law School in Chicago a week after the Democratic Convention of 1968. And that's where I'm going to start my little history uh, dissertation, as it were, about uh, police violence, systemic police violence, uh, Chicago style. And you may ponder a bit, if we're talking about mass incarceration, why I'm talking about police violence. But I think it doesn't take too much to connect the two together. That we're really talking here, and when we look at things, we have to look at things organically or as a whole. And we're talking about the school to prison pipeline. We're talking about mass incarceration. And the police, of course, are on the front lines of that mass incarceration. They are the enforcers. They are the oppressors. They are the ones who occupy the poor communities of color, particularly in the urban areas of this country. So when I came to Chicago a week after the Democratic Convention, the Chicago police had just finished cracking heads of the demonstrators, white and black, who were protesting against the Vietnam War at the 1968 Democratic National Convention. I was somewhat oblivious to that other than to what I saw on TV. But within a year, I came to very much understand what the Chicago police 
were all about. A friend of mine in Northwestern had interested me in working with a group of lawyers, one of whom was Jeff Haas, who wrote that book. Another one was Professor Mellis's dad, uh, who was a young lawyer uh, in Chicago, who was also uh, devoted to civil rights and fighting against police repression. And we all, me as a student, and they as lawyers, and some other students and lawyers, decided that we needed to start our own office. And so we found a converted sausage shop on the near north side of Chicago, and we created an office, an office that would represent people who are in struggle, particularly people who were fighting for black liberation. Uh, at that time, as Toussaint mentioned, the Black Panther Party in Chicago was very strong, and it had a leader, a leader who was unique in terms of his, his, his charisma, in, in, in his leadership capacity, and the fact that he was trying to bring a rainbow coalition long before Jesse Jackson uh, took credit for the rainbow coalition. He was trying to bring together radical groups of all colors and organizations in the city of Chicago. And we had the honor of representing Fred Hampton. And I, as a law student, got to meet Fred Hampton. And I, as a law student, got to bring Fred Hampton to a law school, my law school, and see him speak to the law students in the same way he spoke at a West Side church uh, filled with African-American young people. Just a very charismatic person. Three months after that, I was standing in his blood. On December 4th, 1969, I got a call. It might have been from Jeff or one of the other lawyers. Come to the apartment. Chairman Fred has been murdered. So I went and got a friend out of the law school class, and we went to the small apartment on the west side of Chicago where the Panthers were living at that time, where Fred Hampton was sleeping in his bed. And the police had left the apartment open. And so we kind of put together our own evidence-taking crew of lawyers, law students, and legal workers. And for the next 10 days, we gathered evidence of what had happened there. Now, all four newspapers were saying it was a shootout, that the Panthers had fired as many as 100 shots at the police, uh, and this prosecutor whose police executed this raid with machine guns and shotguns and handguns uh, was, was putting out this narrative, this lie. So for the next 10 days, as we looked around that apartment and gathered all the evidence that was left, we were able to start to change that narrative. It was a shoot-in. It was a murder. It was an assassination. We started to be able to show it because of the walls. All the bullet holes in the walls went in one direction. They all went towards the little bedrooms where the Panthers were, were sleeping. But uh, this, the prosecutor charged all of the living, surviving Panthers with attempted murder. They weren't satisfied with murdering Fred Hampton and another Panther named Mark Clark. They charged the seven Panthers who survived with attempted murder. So we represented them, and we were able to get that, those cases dismissed. Uh, because we were able to show that they had fabricated evidence 
of bullets fired by the Panthers, and that they were, those bullets were really fired by the police. But as young lawyers, we then set out to try to further establish the truth of what happened. And we filed a civil rights lawsuit. It was really the first case that I was involved in. I helped to draw up the papers. And we filed it in federal court. And in federal court, we were able to seek evidence, what's called discovery. And so for the next 13 years, we fought that case. I was one of the trial lawyers, along with my partner, Jeff Haas. We were on trial in federal court for 18 months. It was the longest trial in federal court history at that time. I often say my first trial was 18 months long. Not too many lawyers say that. But during that 13-year period, fighting tooth and nail, not only the lawyers, but the community. The community continued to be outraged by what happened. The Panthers opened that apartment up to the community. And thousands and thousands of people over the next 10 days took tours of the apartment and saw what we saw, saw the blood, saw the bullet holes. And public opinion started to change. And so when the federal government refused to indict anybody for these murders, and when the state judge threw out an indictment uh, of the prosecutor and the police for obstructing justice in this case, we continued on with our case. And what we were able to uncover was what Toussaint was referring to, which was this was not only a murder, this was not only a shoot-in, but this was also part and parcel of a nationwide illegal unconstitutional program under J. Edgar Hoover, who was the longtime head of the FBI, a longtime program called COINTELPRO. And COINTELPRO was about not just surveilling uh, unpopular organizations like the Black Panthers, like Martin Luther King's SCLC, like the Nation of Islam, like uh, Malcolm X but also to disrupt them, and ultimately to destroy those organizations. And we uncovered evidence that specifically said that those or that, that, that program was directed at Malcolm X. It was directed at Elijah Muhammad of the um, uh, Nation of Islam, and Martin Luther King and SCLC. And what we later were able to show was that it also was directed in full force against the Black Panther Party. And that in their own documents, they basically said it, they were out to destroy the Black Panther Party by any means necessary. And that meant not only by uh, the kinds of means that of disrupting, by making people lose their jobs or slandering them in the newspaper, but also by violence. And ultimately, to manipulate local police departments to carry out raids. And how they did it in Chicago was that the FBI had a COINTELPRO informant. His name was William O'Neill. He infiltrated the Black Panther Party. He drew a floor plan of the apartment where the raid took place. And that was given to Hanrahan and the police. And on that floor plan, it marked specifically where Fred Hampton would be sleeping. And in fact, it marked the place where Fred Hampton had two bullets put into his head. 
by the Chicago police. So how do we know that? We know that by FBI documents that they kept from us for years and years, but we were able to finally uncover. We know that from counterintelligence documents. And we know, and we finally uncovered during that trial the fact that the FBI congratulated itself for setting up the murders of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark. And that informant, that man named William O'Neill, he was given a bonus. They wrote a document to Hoover's office in Washington saying he, the raid was a success, that O'Neill's information was crucial, and that he should get what amounted to 30 pieces of silver FBI stock. He got a $300 bonus for his work, and the FBI patted themselves on the back, then covered this all up until we were able to uncover it. So one thing that we've always tried to do and felt very self-conscious about was not only to litigate in court, but to help to bring out with movements, with people, with activists, the truth, what we call changing the narrative. In the Hampton case, we like to think we changed the narrative from a shootout to a shoot-in, to from the police did it, to that it was part and parcel of the COINTELPRO program. That in Chicago, we showed the lengths that the police and the government would go to suppress dissent, and specifically to suppress organizations that they felt threatened the system of government and this economic system of this country. Because the Panthers not only said that they not only fought against police brutality, but they also talked about setting up an alternative form of government. They talked about setting up and did set up health programs. They set up uh, breakfast programs. Uh, they sent up other kinds of programs uh, to serve the people, as they would say. Power to the people, they said. And that's how we got our name, the People's Law Office, because we were told by the Panthers and, and, and enlisted by the Panthers to represent them, and then they started to call us the People's Law Office. So that was a really extreme example, example of systemic and racist police violence. Not only police violence, but government violence. Well, about the same time that this was starting to be uncovered in the 70s, there was a police detective in Chicago by the name of John Burge. John Burge was no amateur. John Burge was in the US Army. He was a sergeant, a military police sergeant. He was assigned to a POW camp in Vietnam. And we now know that in, and in Vietnam, on those POW camps, they were torturing uh, Viet Cong, as they were called. They were torturing civilians. And they were using, among other things, a devices that electric shock people. And when Burge came back from Vietnam with all that knowledge, he became a Chicago police detective. And lo and behold, within months, we now know, 
of when he started to be a Chicago police detective on the south side of Chicago, a predominantly African-American part of the city, that he started to interrogate people with the same kinds of techniques that he learned in Vietnam. And the stories started to come that he was electric shocking suspects who he was interrogating about crimes. And how did he do this electric shocking? Well, the way it was later described by one of our clients was he had a box, and they had a crank on this box. And there was some sort of generator in the box. And the, then the generator had wires on it. And the wires had alligator clips on it. And the alligator clips could then be attached to someone's fingers, to, to their fingers, to their ears, to their genitals, wherever. And then you turn the crank, and you send electricity through a person while you're interrogating him or her. That wasn't the only technique that he was using, however. And he wasn't the only one doing this, by the way. You could not get away with something like this unless you had confederates, unless you had others that were working with you, unless you had bosses who were more than happy to have those confessions turned into court and have been happy to send people to the penitentiary based on those tortured confessions, and in some instances, more than happy to send people to death row. So another method that was commonly used by Byrd was what was called dry submarino. Now submarino is known in the torture lexicon as putting someone's head under water to simulate that they're drowning. Dry submarino is taking a bag or a typewriter cover or some other kind of uh, device like that, putting it over the person's head, cutting off the air supply, perhaps punching them in the chest to knock out whatever air he has in his uh, lungs, and then hold that for a minute or two until he thinks he's suffocating to death, and then take it off and say, you're ready to talk. Some men could suffer through this once, some twice, some even made it through three times before they confessed. But they would confess. And another tactic that was used was called mock execution. Many of our clients later told us that they had guns put in their mouth and they played Russian roulette, uh, shotguns jammed in their mouth, all sorts of those kinds of, of, of mock executions. And all of this was connected to a very racial, racist approach. Not only were the men African-American, but they were called the names that go along with white supremacy and racism. And also, in another aspect that connects back to slavery, which of course all of this does, was that often their genitals were attacked. And this was no mistake, either given the history of slavery, given the history of slave patrols, given what has gone on in the South for so many years and so many decades. Now, all of this was covered up for many years until we ended up representing a man who was tortured into giving a confession with all those techniques I mentioned. And he was perhaps one of the most unpopular persons in the history of the city of Chicago. He had been uh, arrested 
and convicted of killing two white police officers. And he was on death row. And no one wanted to represent him. He wrote his own complaint out. He, was a, he hadn't passed first grade, but he had somehow managed with help to write out a complaint and filed it in federal court asking to, for damages uh, for the, his torture. And all the lawyers that the judge tried to bring in would not represent him. So finally, he came to us. And we talked about it, and we decided what seems like to be a principle that we should all follow, which is torture is wrong. Torture is a human rights violation. And it doesn't matter to whom you do it. It doesn't matter if he's a cop killer or a saint. It doesn't matter if he's your brother or someone that's accused of the Boston bomb. You cannot, under, under human rights law and under any kind of morality, torture anyone. So we took that case. And I stand here 30 years later. We're still fighting the cases of police torture. We thought it might just be one case, one unusual case, one case that happened because these cops were so overwrought uh, with anger because he killed two of their, fe their fellow uh, police officers. But one day, while we were on trial in, in Wilson's case, I got an anonymous phone call from a confederate of Burgess. And I also got a letter in the mail at the same time. And that letter and that call told us to go find another man who had been tortured only days before. And it talked about how this was a systemic problem within the police department, and how it was not only something that a few rogue police officers were doing, but that the superintendent knew about it, that the state's attorney of Cook County knew about it, that the mayor of the city of Chicago knew about it, and that it was covered up by all of them. Now, the state's attorney of Cook County at that time, when Andrew Wilson was tortured, Andrew Wilson being the man I, that we represented uh, who wrote out his complaint, um, was a man by the name of Richard Daly. Now, Richard Daly might ring a bell with a few of you, even if you don't live in Chicago. Richard Daly was the son of Richard Daly, the first king of Chicago, the first mayor who reigned in Chicago for 20 years, the mayor who sicked the Chicago police on the demonstrators in 1968, the mayor who said shoot to kill uh, when there were riots or uprisings uh, in the black community after uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated. His son was following in his footsteps. And his son had been an architect in the cover-up of this torture. Well, we started to follow these leads that we got from the anonymous source, whose name we, we never learned his name. But we gave him the nickname Deep Badge, sort of like Deep Throat in Watergate. And lo and behold, we found this man who had been tortured nine days before Andrew Wilson had been. And that led to other men. And finally, some 30 years later, I stand here now. We have documented 125 cases of torture of African American and men of color on the south side and the west side of Chicago during the 20 years that Burge was 
a reigning supreme. He started out as a detective, and his work was so successful that he made it to commander uh, faster than any other uh, officer in the history of the city. Daly went on from being state's attorney to being the mayor of the city of Chicago for 20 years and fought us tooth and nail at every stage of our attempting to uncover this cover. So as I stand here today, again, people in struggle, and we, from uncovering that evidence, have changed the narrative. No one wanted to call it torture. Nobody wanted to call it a human rights violation. People hardly wanted to call it brutality. But now, 30 years later, that struggle has led to many different important victories. It led first to Burge being fired. It led to a special prosecutor being appointed, which condemned the torture to some degree. It led 20 years later to the indictment of John Burge for lying about torture. It led to him going to the penitentiary. It led to many of those men on death row being exonerated based on the fact that they had false confessions tortured from them. And most recently, because of the struggle that went on in the streets, there has been an historic reparations granted by the city of Chicago. And the mayor of the city of Chicago, the much maligned and righteous, righteously so maligned Rahm Emanuel, was compelled prior to the last election when he was threatened by lose, of losing the support of the African-American community in Chicago because of what he had done with regard to the schools and other things. Uh, that that uh, support that was given to him, not earned, because he worked for President Obama for a while, he was afraid he was going to lose that. And so because of this organization that people like one of your speakers from a few weeks ago, uh, Mariam Kaba, and others uh, in, in a group called uh, the Chicago Torture Justice Memorials Project, were able to organize and to get a reparations package passed by the mayor and city council. And these were first some of the, about 50 or 60 of these men who had no legal recourse. Their statute of limitations on their cases had long since run out. They had no way in the courts to get any kind of relief. So reparations was something that was politically obtained rather than legally obtained. And what was obtained was not only a $100,000 stipend for each of those 57 men, but also five or six other very significant non-financial reparations. One, that torture, the history uh, that I have mentioned, would be taught to 8th and 10th graders in the Chicago public schools. Second, there would be a center on the south side of Chicago, where men who were victims of torture and their families could come for treatment and counseling and to speak to each other. Third, there would be a memorial set up in the city of Chicago to the torture victims. 
Now, I'm probably forgetting one or two other things, but those were very, very substantial accomplishments. And those reparations are something that others around the country have taken to heart. I was involved in a case in Little Rock after that, Little Rock, Arkansas. And in Little Rock, we were able not only to obtain a financial settlement for the family of an of a elderly man that was shot down by the police, but also to get a memorial set up for him. And another thing that I did forget was that there was an official apology. Now, the apology not only came from the city council of the city of Chicago, but it came from the mayor himself. And it was in front of a crowd of some three or 400 people at the city council hearing. And among that crowd were 15 torture survivors. And Rahm Emanuel turned around and faced them and apologized to them in a way that shocked even me, that he could show that much compassion. And whether it was feigned or not, it was, it was quite remarkable. And that we also obtained subsequently in Little Rock and that kind of, uh, of, of non-financial reparations in police violence cases is something that can be utilized as being considered in other places around the country. So that was an important victory. So what we need to do when we talk about these cases, we can become very depressed. We can become very angry, and we should become angry. But we also have to look to see the movements that have stepped up and continue to step up. Black Lives Matter, for example. We Charge Genocide was an organization in Chicago that went to the UN uh, to fight uh, for, against police brutality. And that we have to remember that we're dealing not only with constitutional rights violations, not only with civil rights violations, we're dealing with human rights violations. Now, just this past week, you may have heard that the US Working Group of Experts on People of African Descent said that the killings across the country predominantly African-American and other people of color, was similar to, reminiscent to, the past racial terror of lynching. Now that's a heavy statement, but that's also a statement that really talks not only to police murders of black and other people of color, it speaks to police torture. It speaks to wrongful convictions. It speaks to the death penalty. Because all of that comes out of a history of slavery. It comes out of the history of lynching. It comes out of the history of Jim Crow. And we cannot forget that. And that's why these are human rights violations. What we were able to do at one point in this struggle against torture was to go to the uh, Committee Against Torture of the United Nations, to go to the Amer uh, Organization of American States, to their Human Rights Commission, 
and to present the case of torture. And when we were getting no kind of response from the powers that be in the Chicago uh, or the United States Department of Justice, the UN condemned as torture what was happening in Chicago and called on the United States state party to prosecute. And I'm sure that that had some impact ultimately on the US government prosecuting Burge very late and not sufficiently, certainly. He was never prosecuted for torture, but at least he was sent to the penitentiary. Now, when I was thinking about what I was going to say today, I want to say that when I mentioned Ram Emanuel, it wasn't but a few weeks later that it was exposed that he had covered up the Laquan McDonald video. Now, Laquan McDonald, for those of you who may not know, was the man in Chicago, the young man who was walking down uh, a street at night and kind of looked. He might have been playing around with a, a small knife in his hand, but was not threatening whatsoever. And Chicago cops shot him 16 times, the last eight or so times while he was laying and writhing on the ground. And video caught all of that. But Rahm and his people thought, well, I don't want that to come out before the election. So it didn't. But it later came out. And it caused a firestorm in Chicago, not unlike the firestorm that has swept the country ever since the killing of Michael Brown. Now, I've been doing this work now for 45, 47 years. And I think of many cases where black and Latino men have been shot down, that we represented their families, or we told their families we couldn't represent them because we just didn't have the proof to show that they were wrongfully murdered. I think of a case where a young man named Gary Lee was shot in an alley on 70, behind 79th Street. And the cops said that he had a razor. And we had no eyewitnesses that said that he didn't. But we were able to make out a circumstantial case that he didn't have a razor and that they threw the razor down, a drop razor, like a drop gun or a drop knife. And we went to a jury. And the judge was convinced. But we had, unbeknownst to us, we had someone on that jury who was very close to the police. He became a foreman, and we lost the case. Now, if I would be convinced that today, if that were on videotape, that the truth of what we felt happened would be portrayed. So when we're talking about police violence today, we have to understand that historically, it's always been. Historically, those cases have not hit social media because there was no social media. There haven't been videos because there were no videos. But I could go back and examine every case we took or cases we didn't take and think about what it would mean if there was a video. And thinking about across the country, I sat down on the way over here and I started to write down some cities. 
Ferguson, Chicago, Los Angeles, Little Rock, Baton Rouge, Milwaukee, El Cajon, Minneapolis, Oklahoma City, Tulsa, Asheville, Cleveland, Columbus, Baltimore, Charlotte, North Charleston, South Carolina, Fresno, Pittsburgh, Brooklyn, Philadelphia. What do they all have in common? In the last year and a half, two years, there have been videos or police killings, questionable police killings. And that, of course, is the tip of the iceberg. I think if you put in to Google police killings, you probably get another 40 or 50. And why do I read those to you? Because I want to bring home the point that as bad as what happened in Chicago, as systemic as what happened in Chicago and is happening now in Chicago. Chicago now has a place called Homan Square. Homan Square is a secret site that got uncovered um, by people subsequently to 10 years of holding people secretly off the books where they could be interrogated and sometimes tortured. We have stop and frisk, similar to what was outlawed in New York. I had a case in Milwaukee that stop and frisk led to the illegal strip searching and body cavity searching of African American men systemically in the city of Milwaukee uh, for several years. So we have all these systemic problems across the country. They are, by and large, a function of white supremacy and racism. We have a candidate for president who is trying to capitalize, is trying to be the modern version of that law and order, is trying to talk about stop and frisk as if it's something that should be reinstituted rather than abolished, something that's not unconstitutional. And the Massachusetts Supreme Court just held that an African-American man who runs from the police, that doesn't give the police probable cause by itself to stop him or arrest him because of his fear of stop and frisk. But I would take that decision one more important step from that. And that step is he's not only, or that person is not only afraid of stop and frisk, but is afraid of being shot down. And if you examine the facts of all of these 22 cities that I've mentioned, you'll see either there was no weapon, they, the, the police story was, I thought there was a weapon, it turned out to be some kind of electronic cigarette, the person was running, all sorts of different scenarios. The person had mental issues, all kinds of scenarios where police should not have shot down someone. But they did, and why they did is because that's what they are expected to do. That until the system changes, until the underlying fundamental issues are changed, 
with regard to our society, police are going to continue to feel emboldened in the poor communities that they have uh, occupied and continue to occupy to act with impunity. Because they're not disciplined, because repeater cops, such as the cop out in California, who should have been fired, is not fired, but rather shows up on the scene and acts out again and kills somebody. So what do we do? Well, we have to not only come try to change the narrative, we not only have to go out in the streets, we not only have to organize, but we have to think fundamentally in terms of what do we ask for? What do we demand? Now, Rahm Emanuel, last week in Chicago, gave a speech, and he said, I'm going to give you, I forget if it was 1,000 new police officers. I think he was going to put 1,000 new police officers on the street. Now, there's been a lot of publicity about Chicago and all the violence uh, in the communities, a lot of, of, of unfortunate, uh, upsetting cases where young kids are getting killed in, in, in drive-by shootings. Uh, people in certain communities don't feel safe. But the question is, is the answer more police? Do you want to put more police in those communities? to do the same kinds of things that they're already doing, that they're already licensed to do? Or do we want to listen to Black Lives Matter? We want to listen to what they have to say. They say defund the police. They say take the money that's going to the police and put it into the community. Deal with education. Deal with health care. Deal with alternatives to prison take the police out of the community. Now that sounds radical, doesn't it? Well, the Black Panthers, who in many ways I see as a precursor to Black Lives Matter, they talked about free health care. They talked about free breakfast programs. They talked about other, what we might call socialistic programs. And we have many of those today, not to the degree we should have, but we have them. So perhaps what people are saying about abolishing prisons, another very radical idea, one that kind of hits you in the face, I suppose, about defunding the police, those are solutions that we maybe should be thinking about raising, think about pushing, thinking about organizing for and thinking about a more encyclopedic view of what's wrong with this society. So in the future, these kind of human rights violations will be something in the past. Thank you.
In, in President Obama's um, mission on policing last year, one big thing that came out of that report was a focus on police legitimacy and increasing police legitimacy. Um, I tend to be very critical of that as a strategy because I worry that maybe it will make people less upset about things they should be rather upset about. Um, yet it seems to be getting a lot of play, especially among um, you know, sort of the, the progressive uh, wing of the Democratic Party. And I was wondering what your thoughts are about police legitimacy and procedural justice as strategies for reform. Well, it, it's hard to legitimatize um, a force that's there not to serve and protect, but rather to enforce the, the, the um, economic structure of society. And um, it makes me, I, I, I don't buy it either. You know, I, I'm kind of in a conflicting situation because as a lawyer, you're fighting to change things. And the question becomes, if you're fighting to try to make police more accountable, is really what you're saying, right? It is, is, is the idea that police can be made more accountable in a way that's meaningful. Is that something that we can do, given the present structure of our society? I guess everybody has to answer that question for themselves, or him or herself. But my view is that you really have to fundamentally change the leadership. And you know, as long as you have a mayor or a police superintendent, say, in Chicago, what, what Emanuel did was he turned around and he appointed someone from the ranks to be the new police superintendent, because he wanted to still be in control of the police department. He doesn't want community control of police. And it would be a fundamental change if the community actually had control of police. Now, that's, that's a battle. That's a hell of a battle, because no power, you know, give, you don't voluntarily give up power uh, in this society or in any society. But that's a demand that, would be, that is meaningful, that's being raised and has been raised for decades. How you implement that, I'm not quite sure. But uh, there's that battle going on in Chicago, because uh, Emanuel did um, accede to having uh, a new police disciplinary agency created, but ultimately he wanted to keep control of it. And so the battle, the grassroots battle, is whether it was going to be a citizen's control of the police disciplinary apparatus, or whether it's going to continue to be under the, the, the ultimate uh, control of the mayor uh, with help from the police superintendent. Probably have a better handle on the day-to-day -day 
changing of the narrative than an old-timer like I do. I mean, I, as a lawyer, I had kind of a unique situation because I was involved in cases where we were uncovering this information. Uh, and then we were speaking about it. Uh, that doesn't always happen, but day to day, you all, through Facebook and, and through Twitter and all that kind of thing, you are uh, exposed to and have access to a wide range of information. And if you then continue to publicize that information uh, in your networks and also to write about it on your blogs and, and, and talk about it with your friends, uh, and go to the demonstrations and support Black Lives Matter rather, and, and, and to fight back against those who are trying to condemn them, such as the, not only the Trumps, but all that Trump represents in terms of that backlash, that there's always a, a tremendous resistance whenever uh, to change and a tremendous resistance when it has, particularly when it's a, it, it's a challenge to white supremacy. And I think that you know we need to make those connections. Uh, that it's not just some kind of random police brutality. It's not just some kind of you know bad rogue cop. But you have to look at it as a systemic problem, and you have to look at it as part and parcel of that continuum from what happens to kids in school all the way to death row in terms of the the quote justice system. But then you have to look at why people and kids are being funneled into that justice system and being mistreated by the police the way they are. And uh, what, what, whether, it's, whether society really wants to warehouse people rather than to educate them when, they, when they're people of color, when they're poor people. I teach Cocktail Pro, I teach the Fred Hampton case, I teach um, the Chicago torture case, and I want to thank you not only for your talk today, but for the work you did in making those things visible for some of us to teach. And I want to ask you a question. One of the things that you talked about today that I didn't know is that versions had served in Vietnam. And we know that, in spite of what people said, that torture has been a policy in the US military since at least the war in the Philippines. And that it's been documented not only in Iraq, but Afghanistan, and more recently. And one of the things I want to ask you is, the conversation here in Western Mass, particularly in Springfield, about how to understand policing and the role of the police in the schools is we've got to understand it in terms of counterinsurgency strategy. That the effect of having a lot of cops who served in the National Guard uh, returning home with this new set of strategies for thinking about policing at home it has been, it seems that it's been well documented by the ACLU and others as having had a serious effect in Springfield. And I'm wondering if you see that nationally, that because the military strategy in the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq was so much about bringing civilians, essentially, National Guards, <coughs> into the war there, how has that had an effect on policing? Because <clears throat> 
the thing that you said, which is which we know, which is that the um, the police have always been shooting folks, and the contemporary social media has made that more public. But I think what we can't figure out, and I wonder if you have a sense of, is whether that has, um, whether there might be an uptick in it that we might see as having had um, some links to a 10-year war. Uh, thank you, for that. those are very uh, good and uh, perceptive comments. Um, not only was Burge someone who um, came out of the Vietnam culture and, uh, of dehumanization, that's another term that we need to look at all of this in light of, that the de dehumanization of people in Vietnam uh, was something that he then transposed to the south side and west side of Chicago. And he wasn't the only one. Some, a couple of his uh, trusted guys were also uh, big-time uh, Vietnam Marine guys, and, and, and when I asked this one guy how many people he had killed in Vietnam, he, oh, many, you know, he just laughed, you know. I mean, they, they're coming back uh, with, with that attitude, and it's a cross thing, you know. You, you see um, people with that attitude, uh, former police, going to and being in Abu Ghraib, being in Afghanistan, and then others coming back. And um, I think that, that, that there have been some psychological studies uh, that, that I know of that, uh, about that as well. And, and I think definitely that kind of um, militarization, not only in terms of the individual attitudes of the officers that come back and the training that they get, but also on a broader scale, the militarization of the police. And that is something that, that has really, really taken off in, in, in the past decades. And, and Obama was big into it, and then he pulled back for a moment. But I think it, that, that it's moving back so that, you know, that, that, that there's this whole counter-narrative that the police are pushing, that they need more weapons, that they need uh, more uh, tanks and all kinds of um, counter-insurgency type of uh, operations and, and uh, uh, weapons and that kind of thing, and the kind of surveillance that we know can be done now. In Chicago, they have a program where they can just, they can follow you uh, through your cell phone. We know all of that, they can, and they, they, they're doing it, and, and with license plates and all different kinds of things, where in the old days, they'd sit in front of a, you know, a, a meeting and take down everybody's license plate number. <laughs> now they just go to their computer and they know everybody who's been anywhere for the last period of time. Um, so I think your point is, is, is very well taken and I think there is a correlation and I think there is an uptake, uptick uh, during wartime, but now we have an eternal war. So it's like that kind of coming back from, from war, uh, being damaged psychologically, uh, having the kinds of attitudes that, that the military and Marines and all have, and you come back here, you become a, a police detective, or you become a prison guard, because not too many people want to be prison guards. Pay's not good. Um, you don't like the kind of interaction you have uh, with prisoners. Um, so it's a real opening for the former military to, to have another place where they can 
uh, do things that uh, are very uh, racist and, and violent. As I said, the, 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 the first cases that, well, if you start at the beginning, these men were prosecuted. These men were prosecuted based on, on, on confessions, by and large, that were tortured from them by Burge and others. Those confessions would come into evidence. Confessions are very powerful evidence. Juries tend to believe them above all else. Why would somebody confess? Um, these the lawyers would try to get those confessions thrown out of court. Judges. Uh, who were all, uh, primarily former prosecutors, uh, would not accept any of the evidence that they were tortured or coerced. Those confessions would come in, they'd be convicted, they would be very serious crimes, uh, and they'd get very serious sentences. And at that point, Illinois had a death penalty, so some of them went to death row. I think like 10 or 12 of the men who were tortured formed an organization in the prison called the Death Row 10. And they were all people who had been tortured by Burge and his men. So that's the first kind of phase that you see. The second phase of sets of cases are the civil rights cases brought under the Civil Rights Act. Those are the kind of cases that we can bring. We're not prosecutors. We can't prosecute bad cops. What we can do, however, is sue them. And when we sue them, we can use the, the powers of the federal courts, where we usually bring the suits, to get the kind of evidence that I've mentioned that we got in the Hampton case and in the Burge torture cases. Uh, another form of, what, of litigation is what's called post-conviction litigation. After someone's convicted, uh, after someone's appeal is turned down, if there's new evidence that comes up, and this is what we had been uncovering over the years, you can take that new evidence into court and ask for a new trial. And that's how a lot of these men who ultimately got exonerated were exonerated. We and other lawyers brought post-conviction cases. Uh, we were able to convince uh, judges uh, or appellate courts that based on this newly discovered evidence, there was a pattern and practice of torture, and therefore that the confession should not uh, have been accepted. Without the confession, these men would often be exonerated. Those are three forms of the legal process. I'm sure I'm forgetting others, but then there's the legislative, there's the, you know, the going to the city council, going to the UN, all of the different 
bodies that you go to to plead your case that are not in court. That, that's a quick answer to it, I think. Well, the first one, um, you know, we've had some experience in, in, in fighting for special prosecutors. And in fact, in the Laquan McDonald case, we were able to convince the chief judge to appoint uh, an African-American lawyer uh, from the private bar to investigate the cops who lied about the shooting uh, and were exposed to having lied after the videotape came out. Uh, special prosecutors is one way uh, that are completely independent of the police is one way. Uh, and an another way is to, is to uh, bust the code of silence, that the, the prosecutors are willing participants in the code of silence. And by the code of silence, I mean you know the blue wall. I mean the police don't uh, expose other police officers. They don't testify against other police officers. They don't give evidence against other police officers. And the state's attorneys we saw in the torture cases, that being the prosecutors, uh, were not only putting on this evidence willingly, but they were often in the station houses when this was happening. And they would be in one room, and a guy would be tortured, and then the cops would bring him into the state's attorney to take, take the, um, the, the confession. And in some instances, the guys would have the courage to tell the prosecutor, hey, they're torturing me. And in the Wilson case, they brought him in. They thought he was going to confess after Burge had tortured him. And um, he told the prosecutor, uh, I'm not going to talk to you while you're torturing me. And the prosecutor said, get the jag off out of here. And they sent him back into the torture chamber until he gave a confession. So how do you break that? Well, if the, if, if the Justice Department if the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department prosecuted prosecutors for that, if in fact they, the code of silence, whistleblowers were encouraged rather than discouraged, which they are in, in most situations, those would be a couple of ways that you could start to try to bust through that, that bond. Um, which extends to the judiciary. Because as I mentioned, I, you know, I've, we've done a couple of studies that most of the judges in the criminal courts are former prosecutors. It's kind of like they didn't get to do all they wanted to do when they were prosecutors. So now they become judges, and that's easy to do in Cook County, because uh, all you got to do is have an Irish name and a connection, and, and, and you, <laughs> you get pretty much appointed, uh, and then you can get elected. Uh, if, if necessary, and then you get yourself on the criminal bench because a lot of judges don't want to be criminal judges. So all of a sudden, you look up there and you've got 25 former prosecutors as 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 the judges, and um, so so that that's a whole other aspect that can be changed. Uh, we just recently had elected in in Chicago uh, because of the Laquan McDonald case and because of the prosecutor who 
was involved in the cover-up, Anita Alvarez, there's an African-American woman named Kim Fox got elected on the, on the, on, because of that. And she's a very progressive person. We'll see what, if anything, she can do as a progressive African-American prosecutor to try to break the code of silence, to try to actually have cops prosecuted um, who, who commit these kind of violations. And not only prosecuted for brutality, but prosecuted for perjury and for lying. When you start to do that, you could really you know, raise a lot of, uh, uh, raise quite a bit of pro problems for, the, for that kind of uh, culture. That, that's so, and what was it, the other half of your question? I think it was the harder. There aren't trials anymore. There's more plea uh -huh. And I'm wondering how um, the prosecutors bypass trials, they bypass the defense attorneys, and they essentially lay the case in the front of the judge who makes a decision, not a jury. And I'm just wondering what you would recommend to break that system down. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not a public defender. Uh, my daughter's uh, going to be one, and we're really proud about that. Um, but uh, if you look to like, places like uh, San Francisco, the San Francisco Public Defender's Office is a very strong office and politically uh, astute office. And their lawyers started to demand trial and actually go to trial on all the, all the cases, and it really forced um, the hand of the prosecutor. Now, the problem is you have so many cases, and you're a defense lawyer, and you're looking at 30 years if you go to trial and lose, but the prosecutor will give you, you know, maybe five years, or, you know, you're looking at 15 years, and you get maybe a year. So it's very difficult, very difficult for that defense lawyer to to, to go to trial in situations like that. So that, that system that works, that punishes people who go to trial, uh, is one that I, might be a way to get at it. And, and, and to study a bit some of the, the more successful public defender's offices who have challenged that, that conveyor belt type of justice with the quotes around justice. Might be. But it's a hard question. We have time for maybe one more question. Well, it is true that in Chicago it's a very low solving rate that very few, relatively speaking, murder cases are solved. Um, I don't know if that's because of the, the fact they don't have enough detectives, that the, that the attitudes of the, of the police department are such that they really don't care 
whether they solve the cases or not, uh, that they're really just going through the motions. Um, I, it's, it's, it's a, that whole interface, if there is one between, and to the degree there is one, between police violence and violence in the community. I think that people in Chicago, uh, they really, really resist the idea that it's Chirac. They really, really resist the idea that, that, that there's nothing but violence in the, in the poor communities, in the African-American communities, because that's definitely not all that's going on there. Uh, and I think there's, I mean, I think there's some kind of difference of opinion between some people in the community who feel that an easy fix would be more cops in the community and those, those younger folks who are like Black Lives Matter saying, no, that's not the solution, that's part of the problem. Um, and and I, I don't, you know, um, pretend to speak for people who live there. Uh, and I, you know, I can only kind of report what, what I've heard. And, and, and I don't really, so I guess I'm sort of saying, I can't really answer your question too directly, uh, but those are some of the things that would go into trying to formulate a, a, a response to it. The elephant in the room with that is gangs. You know, that's out there that make white people fearful. Mm -hmm. They think this is all gang stuff that's going on, and it's not. Well, you know, um, there, that, that raises a whole question, too. There was a very, very effective program, uh, particularly on the South Side, uh, that was, was um, depicted in the movie The Interrupters, Ceasefire, that, that, that people who were former gang members, including several of our clients, or one of our clients in particular, were, were interrupters of violence, who stood instead of the police and, and would intervene, understood the gangs, and would, 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 would intervene and try to uh, keep them from being retribution. And, and for a while, it was very successful. Then the city cut off the money. City cut off the money. Uh, I think, you know, partly because they, the police saw them as a competitive um, force. <laughs> that, the, that these folks were doing a better job than the police were in, in preventing violence. And um, so I think that that kind of community solution to violence uh, in terms of gangs and other kinds of, uh, of violence in the community uh, is something that is also, I think, part and parcel of what Black Lives Matter is talking about.
This is going to work for 10 years.
Yeah, I'll be there tomorrow after the class. Okay, I'll be there. Okay, well, thanks. Hey, thank you. Thank you so much for that awesome introduction. I really appreciate it. And do you have a way to get to the dinner? I do not. Okay. I don't know where it's located. Okay, so do you know down that number still? Yeah, okay. Yeah.